It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Good morning, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you today, as always. By the way, you can live stream us around the country. It's uh, Larry, uh, wait, I think it's, yeah, LarryKudlowShow.com. Go on the internet, LarryKudlowShow.com. I think you have to go on the WABC internet and then go to LarryKudlow.com. Anyway, you can get us across the country, throughout the world, throughout the entire solar system. We have a terrific following around the solar system. And uh, please, please, please join us uh, during the week on Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow. It runs 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. Please join us. And if for some reason you can't get there at 4, just dial up your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR. You won't miss a thing. So we have much to talk about today. And the headline story is going to be Roe v. Wade overturned after all these years, 50 years, some odd. Supremes finally went ahead and did it. And basically, a five-justice majority affirmed the state's, the state's authority to regulate abortion. That's an important point. And the people who vote for state legislatures will regulate abortion, as it should have always been. You're still going to have abortions. They'll be available in numerous states around the country. And I want to say, importantly, because um, there's so much misinformation, Justice Alito's text expressly ruled out uh, overturning other precedents, such as contraception or interracial marriage or same-sex marriage. I mean, look, for me, I'm not the attorney. We're going to talk to Andrew McCarthy a bit later in the show, perhaps run through some of the uh, legal fine points of this decision, but it's long in coming. It's a conservative court. It was five to four. Actually, on the Mississippi case itself, the Dobbs case, Chief Justice John Roberts joined them, so it was 6-3. But I, of course, put my cards on the table, as I have in the past. I am a strong pro-life advocate of the rights of the unborn. I was delighted with this decision. I know there are folks that disagree with me who listen to this show, and I do respect their views. But I will just tell you that's what I believe. I'm a strong pro-lifer, and I um, strongly advocate the rights of the unborn. I mean, I know the issue is some, you know, part of the issue is women's right to choose, and I get that, but I have to say, folks, and just me, who is going to speak for the unborn? They are God's creations. And I'm one of the many, many, many millions of people who will defend their right to live. I mean, the scariest statistic I know from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice institute, but nonetheless, 63.5 million unborn human beings fell to abortion since 1973. 63.5 million. And it's an incredible number. It is a heartbreaking number. It is a tragic number. In recent years, as many more restrictions have been put into play, uh, the pace of abortions has come down. 
think the peak was a million four per year. It's down about a little more than half that, 600,000. But 600,000 lost lives, my goodness, it's an awful number, a tragic number, an ungodly number. Lives lost, these are God's creatures. I mean, I'm one of those that believe, I believe it in morally, I believe it in terms of my Catholic religion, but the moral issue, this is one of the most important things we have, one of the most important issues. And I think, you know, only God, only God can create a life. And only God can extinguish the life. It is up to him, not us. We're mere mortals. He is our ruler. And I think we have no right to kill God's creatures. That is my view. And I respect the, those of you that will disagree with that view, but that is my view. It's an intense moral issue. I think it goes to the heart of the values of this great country of ours. It's also important to note here, with uh, President Joe Biden, of course, trying to scare everybody to death, yesterday, even his own Justice Department. I couldn't believe this. This, this Merritt Garland and his Justice Department came out and attacked the court and its decision. I mean, they're attacking the authority of the Supreme Court. This is the Department of Justice. I think that's just a terrible, terrible move on his part. But these are lawless people. The DOJ did nothing to protect uh, the justices at home, school, their kids where they worship. I mean, they did capture this one guy who was allegedly going to murder Brett Kavanaugh, but they have not arrested the protesters. They haven't lifted one finger to preserve law and order during this whole period. But I want to say this, of course, takes away from the federal decision and puts it back into the states where I think it always belonged. The case for a federal decision was always near zero. It was all politics. There was no really good Supreme Court analysis, judicial analysis. But the numbers here are quite important in terms of how people think. You know, the majority of Americans will call themselves pro-choice. You'll see that in the polls. I'm going to use the uh, Gallup poll. 55% regard themselves as pro-choice. But importantly, inside that number, underneath the hood, 67% support first trimester abortions. But only 36% support second trimester. Okay, only about a third, and only a fifth, roughly 20%, support a third trimester. And so, in many ways, the, the Mississippi decision, which I, I think was 15 weeks, really kind of captures the mainstream of American thinking. In other words, the first trimester. Now, I myself don't support first trimester. I don't support anything. I think life begins at conception. But I'm just looking at the broader body politic here and the attempts by Joe Biden to scare everybody and say this is it, no more abortions, no more women's right to choose, etc., etc., etc. Well, that's folks don't want second and third trimester. Folks do not want partial birth abortions up until the day the baby is born, perhaps on the day the baby is born. 
which to me is an utterly hideous procedure. But folks don't really want that. The far left position of unrestricted abortions, which shows up in this uh, Women's Health Protection Act that Biden and Pelosi and Schumer and their allies would like to uh, propose. That doesn't codify Roe v. Wade. It goes way beyond Roe v. Wade. So I think that um, I think the public is actually, you know, very much behind what the Supremes have done. So, you know, the blue states will permit abortions. The red states will not. Those in between will, you know, set these timetables. I think many, many of them are going to go to 15 weeks or first trimester or, you know, something in that ballpark. And that will, I think, hopefully reduce the volume of abortions. Which is something, in my judgment, doubtly, devoutly to be desired. Biden's scare tactics not going to work. I mean, he tries to scare us on everything. And everybody is rejecting everything he has done. And he will, people will reject his extremist views on abortion, too. But I think uh, the Supreme Court has done a wonderful thing. I'm going to give a hat. Hats off to my former boss, Donald Trump, who, after all, successfully nominated Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett. Hats off to that. And I think this sets a new course for our country. It's a gigantic decision yesterday. A gigantic decision. You know, I want to go a little longer here. Um, I talk about the moral issue and how important that is to defend life and to leave matters of life and death to, to the Lord. But this is also an economic issue. Again, if you go back to this incredible number, 63.5 million abortions since 1973, we're still running 600,000 abortions per year. And you can't have a healthy, growing, prosperous economy unless you have population increases. The life-death ratios have fallen in recent years. And that's really a tragedy. And these countries in Europe or Russia or elsewhere that have negative life-death ratios with falling populations, aging, yes, but also falling, that takes out of growth. I mean, if you follow free market principles... It is a pity, a tragedy, that those children who were aborted, who were killed, never lived to see the light or the opportunities that this great country of ours would afford them. I mean, that's part of the tragedy. It's a terrible thing. I mean, economists, you know, a rule of thumb here is Population growth times productivity equals GDP. 
if your population growth is declining, now ours is not declining, but it is much slower. And as I said, the life-death ratio has come down so much in recent years. And who's going to finance? You know, these are the these will be the young who will go to work, and they will finance the benefits that are, we afford our elderly, our senior citizens, retirement benefits and health care benefits, Social Security and Medicare have to be paid for. That's just one part of this calculation. A great country, a free country, a moral country, and a strong, prosperous country does not kill its young. Those kinds of tragedies are left to our higher power. Now, finally, I want to say, before we take our break, uh, we'll talk this morning uh, about the politics of this, which are important. I, you know, Joe Biden wants to, of course, scare everybody to death and keep telling people this Women's Health Protection Act is codifying Roe v. Wade. It doesn't go much, much further than Roe v. Wade. It would, it would go all nine months, for example, uh, which I think is a dastardly thing. But I don't think that Roe will replace inflation and $5 gasoline and pending recession as the big midterm election issue. I don't believe it. Democrats are dying to distract from their own self-inflicted mistakes. You know, free spending, high taxing, over-regulating, the war against fossil fuels, the war against business, which has done so much damage to the economy and more is coming. They try to play the blame game, but it Voters are not buying it. I mean, Biden's economic polls, his economic and inflation approval polls are in the 20s. So the cavalry's coming. There's going to be a big change. Republicans are going to take the House and probably the Senate as well. They will try to use Roe v. Wade as a distraction. It's not going to work. I don't believe for one minute that that's going to work. You know, I think when we had um, when we had the original leak of the Alito draft uh, a little more than a month ago, you know, Biden tried to distract everybody with that from our economic and inflationary woes. Didn't work. You got a bump for a couple of days, and then you know people settled down. They realized abortions will still be available. The woman's right to choose will still exist. But it will be all determined at the state level, state legislature, by the state voters, not by some court in Washington, D.C. But the point is, it didn't work. And uh, Biden's polls continue to decline because the economic situation continues to get worse. This is going to be this is going to be an inflation election. It's not going to be a Roe v. Wade election. And I will just say thank goodness to the Supreme Court who came to their senses. Thank goodness for Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, who, though they may not love each other, worked together to get conservative justices on the court and solid legal opinions. Thank the Lord. Literally, thank God for this. We need to protect the life and lives of the unborn. They are God's creatures. That's what makes this country great. 
yesterday's decision was such a fabulous, wonderful thing for America and for freedom and the freedom to live. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I'm just continuing this conversation. Uh, We're going to have Senator John Hoven of North Dakota on in a few minutes, one of the the most well-respected people in the Senate on both sides of the aisle. And we'll talk about the politics of Roe v. Wade uh, and this idea that Biden is going to work very hard, Biden and the Democrats, are going to work very hard to make this a uh, the issue, if not the issue, one of the key issues. They'll do anything not to talk about uh, 8.6% uh, inflation and $5 gasoline and uh, $100 plus uh, oil. They'll do anything not to talk about that. They'll do anything not to talk about the weakening economy, which fell by 1.5% in the first quarter of this year, and according to the GDP tracker of the Atlanta Federal Reserve, is flat, 0.0 so far in the numbers we have uh, through May in the second quarter. So we're either in a recession or we're on the front end of a recession with high inflation, with sinking real wages, with rising interest rates. And although the stock market had a good relief rally this week, we'll talk about that uh, at noon Uh, stocks have been falling this year. Retirement accounts, middle-class retirement accounts, are down about $3 trillion so far. They'll do anything not to talk about that. But I don't think they'll be able to escape talking about that. I mean, that's really... uh, Roe v. Wade does not end abortions. It does not end a woman's life to choose. And for that matter, you know, you've got a handful of states that will continue to have virtually unrestricted abortions. It's all there. The good news for me and pro-life people like myself is that undoubtedly the volume of abortions is going to continue to go down. And the public opposes, opposes, you know, by two to one, and by four to one, the public opposes second and third trimester abortions. So I think that's wonderful. That is a gift. So the case that abortions are over and so forth and all this fear stuff, uh, and of course their problems on the border, which continue to rise, problems with the schools. We have Betsy DeVos coming on later. She has a great new book out. She has been a leading apostle, devoted herself to it, of school choice, education, independence. Democrats oppose all this. She's a great apostle of uh, parental parental involvement in schooling and uh, not leaving it up to the teachers' unions or these boards of education, which are in cahoots with the teachers' unions and with Joe Biden's administration. So these are problems that America wants to solve. The economy, inflation, the border, education. People reject critical race theory. They reject the Green New Deal. They reject this progressive, radical, progressive, woke approach. 
That's what's going to kill the Democrats in November. The cavalry is coming. And God bless our Supreme Court. I'm Larry Kudlow. Senator John Hoban, up next. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I think we're about to welcome Senator John Hoban to the show, Senator from North Dakota, one of the most respected people in the Senate. I don't know, do we have John Hoban on the, on the line? We got him. John Hoban, speak. Hey, Larry, how are you? Good oh, morning. Oh, good. Good to hear your voice, Senator. Thank you for doing this. I haven't spoken to you in a while, so you're terrific. How have you been? Actually, I'm doing very well. We have a lot to talk about. You're very kind to give us uh, to give us some time here Saturday morning. Uh, actually, I miss you, John, and your common sense conservatism. I miss you. So, How have you been? Yeah, it seems to me you're pretty busy between your TV show guest appearances and radio show to boot. Doesn't sound like you've slowed down much since White House days. <laughs> I can't slow down. I, I love to work. <laughs> I love to work. I can't retire. Well, I I knew that. I knew that that's a good thing because you got a lot to contribute. You you'll have to carry me out, or you know, I'll I'll leave this world. I'll just slump <laughs> over on the TV set, and you'll just haul me out of here. Well, the good news the good news is you're a young man, so that won't be for a long, long time. <laughs> so, Senator, I want to talk to you about energy and oil and inflation, but I did want to. Uh, give you a shot at the Roe v. Wade decision. If you had any particular thoughts that you wanted to share with us on that. Yeah, well, Larry, it's an important decision, not just for the sanctity of life, but also for states' rights. Mm. Uh, And so now, you know, obviously this uh, very important issue, the issue of life uh, and abortion and so forth, is in front of the states. And, And so the people and their elected representatives will make that uh, decision as to how it should be handled, and and that is the, the right approach. And here in North Dakota, uh, you, you know, we have a trigger law that will go into effect that does not allow abortion, and we've had that uh, for some time. So, uh, you know, th- that's where it sits. I, you know, I, I'm pro-life, and uh, you know, I think obviously it's a very important and, and good decision in terms of life, uh, and certainly states' rights, as I mentioned, but but it puts puts it back to the people uh, where it has always belonged. Yeah, it's a really important point. I completely agree with you, the states' rights issues. You know, the, the, the Second Amendment, actually the Second and Fourteenth Amendment decision on the New York State uh, gun control was also a states' rights issue, putting it back to the states. And... Um, it just looks that, like this court is doing uh, some important things. That's what I what I'm thinking. Very important things. Well, right, Larry. It comes back to you know justices, judges. Their job is to enforce the law, to uphold the law, to in, uphold the Constitution, not to legislate from the bench, not to make law. And that's what this you know this Supreme Court with the conservative majority is upholding the law and enforcing the Constitution, not legislating from the bench, which is exactly what our founding fathers wanted when they set up the three branches as checks and balances. It's the legislative branch that does the legislating. The uh, court, of course, is there to enforce the law and the executive to carry it out. That is the proper role, and that is how our government is supposed to work. You know, uh, another sidelight here, uh, 
of course, Donald Trump appointed the three judges uh, who were the swing players on this, uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and uh, Coney Barrett. But, you know, uh, people should probably not forget that Mitch McConnell's had a lot to do with this, A, preventing uh, Merritt Garland from uh, getting on the court back in 2016, and B, Senator, as you well know, uh, during Trump's term, McConnell, you know, those he doesn't necessarily get along with Trump, but he worked together to implement the um, confirmation of these judges. I mean, McConnell's yeah. got to got to get some credit here, doesn't he? Well, that's right. Yeah, this is a good example. Same like on tax relief, which of you know the uh, tax cut and jobs act, uh, whom a certain Mister Larry Kudlow was very involved with and which was a very very important bill really got our economy going in a huge way another example but yes this is a good example of of working together and you can see how important it was that they did well i'll say one other angle to this center uh hoven is that um a strong economy needs people it needs population growth you know, it needs positive uh, birth-death ratios. And we've been falling on that. I mean, 63.5 million abortions since Roe v. Wade in 1973. That from the Guttmacher Institute, which is basically a pro-choice institute, but they have good numbers. 60, I mean, it's a horrifying number to me, but this is a great moral issue, a great moral issue, as you say, the sanctity of life, uh, and then uh, legislatively or judiciarily, the uh, state's rights argument, but it's an economic issue too, Senator. You know, we need yeah, we need people who you know we need young people who are going to help finance the benefits that our society deems necessary for the elderly, right? For Social Security and Medicare. Abs- absolutely, you know, we that that's a really important point. And again, I, I think it just goes back to what I always like listening to you on the economic issues because you know of what you speak. So here we are talking about how, you know, the aging of our society and how we need young people. Look at what's happening with our labor force. Everybody you talk to, I mean, everybody needs workers now. And so as not only that, but then as our society ages, we want to have young people that can step in and take those jobs. Some people want to work when they're older. Uh, you and I would put in that category, but others may not. And so you've got to have these young people filling in and taking these jobs, and that's vitally important. And the corollary, I would add to that, Larry, that's incredibly important, is we have amazing systems now to help support families with health care and all these other things. So if somebody decides they can't for some reason, uh, you know, keep that baby. You know, there are so many people out there that would love to adopt that baby right. and raise that baby. I mean, there's an incredible desire by families to adopt babies. And so there are good solutions that, that you know, uh, respect the life of the baby and, and would address so many things we're talking about. The desire of a young family to have a baby that can't. And as you say, that, that future young workforce that's going to take care of us. I mean, all those things I think are marvelous things that we should focus on, you know, those positive aspects of what we can do. The, you know, the adoption thing is so important. So, so, so important. It's a great point. Um, Biden never talks about that. It's a pity. It's a shame. Pete, you're right. People and, and people are going overseas to try to adopt because they can't seem to adopt here, but they, they should. 
it can oh, absolutely. make it easier and easier. Well, you and I both have friends that have gone to the far corners of the or go anywhere on the planet to get a baby because they're trying to find a baby to adopt and they're waiting in line in our country and they're not able to get one. And so absolutely, there's just many families out there that would love the opportunity to adopt a baby. Senator Hovind, can you, can you stick through this? I, I got to take a very brief commercial break. And on the other side, I want to talk to you about the energy crisis and this bait and switch meeting meeting that didn't happen between Biden and the OLCO. Can you stick around for a moment, sir? Sure. All right. That's great. We're going to take a quick break, folks. We're talking to Senator John Hoban, a Republican of North Dakota and a great friend of mine. We'll be right back. And then we'll talk about the energy crisis. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with distinguished Senator John Hoven of North Dakota. Um, Senator Hoven, I want to go back to this um, non-meeting, the bait and switch with the all CEOs. I mean, we're in an energy crisis, and Biden, of course, is in denial about that. Biden snubs the oil execs, then he glad hands the wind companies and the labor unions in the Roosevelt Room in the White House, uh, sends the oil people to the uh, Energy Department, um, which is kind of an ugly building. The White House is really much grander. And I think he sent a message that's like, I don't care. You know, you're not the solution. We're going to get rid of fossil fuels. And um, I think that all spoke volumes. And I spoke to uh, a couple people, a couple of the oil execs who were in that meeting, and they got nowhere. At least Jennifer Granholm did not insult them the way Biden insults them. But they asked for regulatory waivers, uh, Senator, and they got nothing, no satisfaction from Granholm because, you know, she can't do it because her boss won't let her do it. What do you make of all that? Well, that, that just in a sense, you know, just sums up the whole problem, doesn't it? I mean, here uh, President Biden's going to meet with the oil companies to talk about producing more supply at home finally, which is, hey, that's the problem. I mean, that, that's the solution to the problem is produce more energy here at home. So the solution is produce more energy at home. The problem is the Biden administration's energy policies. That is the problem. And so, you know, because it's supply and demand, as you know, we've got to produce more supply to uh, meet the demand to bring the price down at the pump for our consumers. His policies have done just the reverse. So, yeah, finally he sets up a meeting. He's going to bring them in. You think, great, finally he's going to talk to them about maybe doing some things to take the handcuffs off him, which he's put on, and uh, so we can start producing more oil and gas here at home, where, by the way, we have the best environmental standards versus anywhere else in the world. And so then instead, what a head-scratcher. He <laughs> sends them over to see Jennifer Granholm, the uh, Secretary of Energy, to, to talk about what they should be talking about. Uh, and he then he gets you know the, the uh, Renewable Energy Group in and sits and talks with them. And exactly, it makes no sense. Again, he, you know, he's got these band-aid solutions like taking uh, oil out of the strategic petroleum reserves or wanting to, uh, you know, suspend the gas tax, which isn't going to happen. And even people in his own party say that doesn't make sense. Or, or he goes to Saudi or, 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 or asks Venezuela to give us more oil. Everything but what makes sense, which is produce more energy here at home where we have the best environmental standards. And, and I, you know, you have to say, what in the world? Why is he doing this? It, it makes no sense. And, you know, Larry, the only thing I think it, can think is he is so captive 
uh, to this new green movement that, that he just can't do what he needs to do to address the problem here in this country. And it's and it's affecting all every every person, not just at the pump, but every time they go to the grocery store or buy anything else. I mean, I think he's um, of course, he'll blame everyone for the inflation problem, but he does nothing to solve the inflation problem. And, and Senator, I think, you know, his I mentioned this in my opening I mean, I think he's going to try to make the Roe v. Wade decision the big election issue, not inflation, not $5 gasoline, not falling real wages, and not recession. You think that's the strategy they're going to make? No question. They, uh, the administration uh, and Democrats have been doing everything they can to you know, try to shift the attention from inflation and uh and energy the price of the pump uh and and remember this en- energy it's not just it's not just at the pump there's an energy cost in every good or service you buy it affects everybody every day but it's also a national security issue as we know we could talk about all that but the point is you're right they're trying to shift the discussion away from that to anything else but here's the reality Every American's feeling the pain of that policy every single day. So he can keep trying to shift it. And these other issues will be issues. But people are not – but inflation is going to stay right at the top because it, it uh, adversely impacts everybody every day. He's chosen the Green New Deal and the radical greenie stuff over energy security. But let's go to this national security issue. You know, among other things, Senator, as you probably know this, but Russia – is now virtually back to producing the 10 million barrels a day that they had before the war in Ukraine started. The demand from China and India is picking up the slack on export sales. So my point is, because of Biden's stubbornness and stopping the supply of, of fossils, keeping the price high, we're actually benefiting Russia right now. Well, our, our sanctions are ineffective because they're being overtaken uh, by China and India and some others in Asia and some others in Latin America. I mean, that's killing our national security position. Yeah, no, that's right. That they're they're in essence funding those higher prices fund the Russian war machine. And, and the very fact that instead of working with Europe, you know, Europe went down that trail where they're getting oil and gas from Russia, and then and now Biden wants to put us in the same kind of straitjacket. You can see the geopolitical ramifications of that with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, he he continues to sell oil uh, and gas to China and India. You know, we saw that same problem with the sanctions we worked to put on Iran. You know, Mm -hmm. then they flip around and and President Obama gave them waivers to, uh, you know, in terms of the banking system, because, you know, we could have shut that down. And there's and they were selling their oil to India and some of these other countries when we're trying to put the clamps on them to stop their nuclear program. So, again, we've, you know, you're right, and we've got to get tough on this. We need to produce oil and gas. We can do it with the best environmental standards. It's not just an economic issue. It is very much a national security, and, and a, not just for us, but for our allies as well. What are your What are your folks saying? I mean, North Dakota is home to Bakken, my friend Harold Hamm and others. What are they saying about all this? Oh well, they, they're they're trying to produce more oil and gas. They can't because because of all these regulatory restrictions. So whether you want to start with the restrictions or not, the moratorium on producing 
oil and gas on federal lands. That's not just offshore, Larry. We produce a lot of oil and gas on federal lands here. So that gets taken off the table. Then he says he's going to restore it, but, he, but restore it, but he only restores 20 percent. 80 percent is still uh, off limits. And then on the 20 percent, he raises the, the uh, lease rates, so that increases the price. Yeah. But then, in addition, his agencies they either hold up the drilling permits, or you get locked up in court by you know, like I say, these folks who want the Green New Deal. So then you can't produce, uh, you know, those new leases. So you know, he, he's talking one thing and doing another. He continues to hold up that. And then don't even get into infrastructure and trying to permit the oil and gas pipelines, the gas gathering systems, the LNG facilities, all those things. You've got to have, you know, those types of pipelines and systems and, and then refining capacity. You talked about that meeting you missed. One of the key things that those oil and gas people were going to make to him is we've got to be able to expand our refining capacity here, which they're trying to do. But again, they hit these regulatory barriers. We're at 95% refining capacity, as far as I can tell. 95%. And he's knocked out, what is it, 10 or 12 refineries have been knocked out uh, during the Biden term. We haven't built a new refinery, Senator, what, since the 70s? Yeah, long time. What they're trying to do is expand the existing refineries, but they need so many approvals and they're held up so bad. And that's actually the, the bottleneck right now. We can continue to bring uh, more oil. Uh, you know, we can produce more here, but but you still got to refine it. And so that that refining becomes the bottleneck for getting gasoline to the pump for the consumer to get the price down. And again, it's because you got all these restrictions. Every, and here's the other thing. If, if you constantly have an administration that tells you that he's going to put you out of business, mm. doesn't it make it a lot harder to go and invest and build new facilities? Mm. It sure does, right? So <laughs> that's why I say he's putting the handcuffs on these guys when they would like to and they're trying to produce more energy. Um, Senator Hovind, let me uh, switch gears a bit. Uh, there's not much specifics that we can get our arms around, but there is a private conversation going on between Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer about a possible reconciliation bill. I believe the deadline for all that is September 30 at the end of the fiscal year. Uh, inside that, there's a lot of rumors and stuff, but uh, $500 billion in tax credits for renewables, more spending for Obamacare, more spending for Medicaid, and maybe worst of all, worst of all, a big tax hike is stuck in there, a corporate tax hike, a tax hike on wealthy people, a tax hike on foreign, uh, U.S. foreign revenues. You know anything? I mean, this, you know, Joe Manchin has done the Lord's work. He helped to save America and kill the bill, but he's involved in this. My heart may be breaking over there because he's a friend of mine, but what's going on? What can you report? Anything? Who knows? Any? I asked John Thune about this on the TV show, and he said to me, he said, Larry, Manchin's a friend of yours. You need to call him. I said, well, okay, but still, what's going on here? Do we know, Senator Hovind? Yeah, so a couple things there. I One, I've known Joe, he and I were governors together for a long time, and then we've been in, we came into the Senate about the same time. So I've known Joe for, uh, I, I don't know, 15 years or longer. And, uh, you know, we're friends, and we've worked together on a lot of things. We actually passed the Keystone Pipeline bill together that, that President Obama vetoed. And you're right, he's done some really good work. He helped us kill Build Back Better. 
Mm-hmm. And he did it for the right reasons, because he knew that that $5 trillion the Democrats wanted to spend would be on top of too much spending already. And just think where we'd be. Look how bad inflation is now. And if we'd had that additional spending, oh, my gosh, it's just hard to imagine. And so, yes, he's visiting with Schumer about this stuff. And I agree with you. It's worrisome. In fact, you know, like I say, we're friends. So I've talked to him and I said, you know, Joe, the work you've done to help stop some of this out of control spending is so important. You know, please keep that in mind. And and more spending and higher taxes are just going to make things worse. And I said, I just hope you keep that in mind. And, and of course, he says, well, yeah, but they are talking. And so uh, Thune's advice was probably pretty good. Larry, you better call, call <laughs> Joe up and say, Joe. Don't break my heart. Don't break my heart. We don't need more spending. We don't need more taxes. We don't need more regulation. We need less of all three if we want to solve this uh, inflation problem. <laughs> I'm taking it very personally, very call emotionally. Him say, call him up and say just what you said to me. Say, Joe, don't break my heart. <laughs> the, you know, besides the spend, I mean, we don't need more Green New Deal spending. We don't need we should be freezing domestic spending anyway to fight inflation. But the ta- John, there's uh, potentially a one point seven trillion dollar tax hike under discussion. I mean, I've seen this. Uh, uh, I know. It's a concern. Whoa. It's a concern. And folks like me, I mean, Joe's my friend, and I, I talk to him, and I agree with you. You know, Larry, you, you and I come from the same place here. And I hope the other one that's been good on this issue on the Democrat side, Larry, is Kristen Cinema, mm. particularly on not understanding that raising taxes mm. is a really bad idea. And so I hope, I hope she'll hang in there. Mm. But you're right. No, this is the last thing we need. All right. Good luck, Senator John Hoban. Thank you, sir. Enjoy talking to you. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. The show will continue on the other side of the break with the great Betsy DeVos, former education secretary. She's got a great new book out. She's America's number one fighter for education independence and school choice. And by the way, let us not forgive all these student loans, for heaven's sakes. I'm Kudlow, taking a break. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you. You can live stream us over the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, all around the country, overseas, throughout the solar system. We have a terrific following throughout the solar system. And uh, you can see us, uh, Fox Business Network, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The show's called Cudlow. Anyway, we bring in Betsy DeVos, great friend, former Secretary of Education during the Trump administration. Her new book, very, very important, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education and the Future of the American Child. Uh, so, Betsy DeVos, welcome. Um, thanks for doing this. I want you to... Thanks, Larry. I want you to Thanks. sell Great million, to be with you. million books. You know, um, I thought the Jason Riley article in the journal was just fabulous. Betsy DeVos's mission to rescue teachers unions hostages. Now, you told me this on the TV show, and I didn't know this, that the, the root of all evil here was Horace Mann, the 19th century politician and educator who was credited with founding the public school apparatus and who said... Uh, we are entitled to look upon all parents as having given hostages to our cause. How's that working, Betsy DeVos? 
Well, Larry, uh, parents, especially in the last two years, have really had a front row seat to their children's education. And uh, for most, many of them, if not most of them, uh, all of the failings of the system have been laid bare, failings that have been there for many, many years, but came into clear focus during the pandemic when schools were locked down for months on end. There are mandates coming and going. You had distance learning that was hardly any learning, if any at all. You had curriculum coming into your home that parents were appalled by or, uh, or disappointed by because of its lack of rigor, rigor or expectation. And so uh, what has been a, a, a truism for decades now is now more in front and center with parents. And um, it is really a, an ideal and important time for policymakers to change the paradigm in favor of parents and kids and away from funding the system. I mean, part of this, uh, of course, I totally agree with you, but part of this which did surface uh, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, as you say. But, uh, you know, this business about the school boards of education in cahoots with the teachers. I mean, I think the teachers union is probably the fount of all evil here. And that's where the fight is joined. But the school board yep. issue and then the idea that um, parents became domestic terrorists because they do want critical race theory and they didn't want uh, various gender and sex taught to five-year-old kids. I mean, that's what you're kind of getting at, but it all came to a head, I thought, over domestic terrorism. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, some of this was brought into focus during the Virginia governor's race last year, where mm. there's a very clear delineation between uh, Glenn Youngkin, then the underdog, who stood with parents and supported students, as opposed to Terry McAuliffe, who said that parents shouldn't have a say in their kids' education, and doubled down on it, and had uh, head of the teachers' union, Randy Weingarten, in as his closing act in the campaign. Um, all of this it sets up a very clear distinction between those who are going to stand with parents being able to direct their kids and their kids' educations and the system that has held them hostage for many, many, many years. I mean, school choice, education independence is gaining ground, right? I mean, the numbers, I walk us through some of the numbers on this. I mean, we're spending it, a fortune on these public schools and education uh, standards are going down. So what, what do these numbers look like, Betsy DeVos? Well, we spend over $750 billion every year on K-12 education. On average, $15,000 per student. Uh, the contention is, my, my position is, we should be sending, metaphorically, those monies in that child's backpack to wherever their par parents decide is the right place for them to go to school. It could be to their assigned school. It could be to a school in their neighborhood that they haven't had access to because they can't afford the tuition. It could be a homeschool or a micro school or a learning pod, all of which were created out of necessity during the pandemic by creative families who had the resources to do it. We need to empower all families with those resources, sending them via the family's direction instead of sending more and more money to the system. You know, when you uh, mentioned the backpack metaphor on the TV show, that really struck a note. A lot of people uh, wrote in or texted and so forth. Uh, they hadn't thought of it that way, but it makes all the sense 
in the world. So I, I love that metaphor. You should, I think that's a winner for you in this, in this whole debate. Betsy, let me ask you something. You know, reading Jason Riley's article, which was lovely. And by the way, folks, the name of the book is Hostages No More, The Fight for Education and the Future of the American Child. I want to sell a million books today on the radio. But he tells it, Jason Riley is a great friend. So he tells a story. Cory Booker was with you as Newark mayor for school choice. You served on some boards with him. And then, lo and behold, he's in the Senate. And you're being nominated for education secretary, and he wouldn't meet with you. He just walked away because of the teachers' union, and he was running for president. I didn't know that story. That's a heartbreaker. Yeah. Yeah, it was heartbreaking, uh, heartbreaking for myself personally, but heartbreaking for the millions of kids who he did a 180 on. And yeah. um, it was clear that he wanted to run for president and get the you know blessing of the teachers union and the Democrat Party. And uh, and he you know, he totally changed his position to try to do that. And um, I, I think, you know, he and other elected officials are going to have to reckon with the fact that Families want to have this power and control over their kids' education, and policies have to change as a result. And, uh, you know, the Democrat Party is going to have to decide that they are going to break from the control, the grip, the vice grip of the teachers' unions and all of their allies and really, really stand with kids and families because uh, this is an issue that is not going to go away. It's gaining momentum. And uh, in states across the country, last year, 26 states either created or expanded on education freedom programs really targeted for, for uh, families in those states. And, and that, um, that continues to grow. This year, there are more bills than ever being introduced and more support for them. At the federal level, there's been a tax credit bill introduced, which would provide rocket fuel for what the states are doing. And, uh, and so the, the pendulum is starting to swing, and uh, that is an important and moment for kids and, and, and ultimately for our country's future. Because if kids, you know, the, this rising generation doesn't have an opportunity to learn everything they need, need to learn and develop into everything that they can individually be, uh, it's, it's really a, a, a problem economically, national security-wise, vis-a-vis uh, -vis our international competitors, if we do not ensure that every kid has an equal opportunity to get a great education. The name of the book is Hostages No More, The Fight for Education and the Future of the American Child. The author is Betsy DeVos, former Education Secretary. Betsy, thank you. Appreciate it very much. Good luck on the book tour. Larry, thank you so much. You bet. You bet. Take care. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to bring in the smartest guy I know, Andrew McCarthy, uh, former uh, district U.S. attorney and uh, contributing editor of National Review. We're going to talk about Roe v. Wade. We're going to talk about some of the legal parts of Roe v. Wade and the politics of Roe v. Wade. Andy McCarthy coming up. I'm Kudlow. Quick break. We'll be right back. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. One of the smartest people I know, period, full stop, Andrew McCarthy. Andy McCarthy is a former uh, Southern District U.S. attorney. He's a Fox uh, News contributor. He's a contributing editor of the National Review. And uh, his book is Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. 
Uh, Andy, I know you're a very busy guy in the last few days, but thank you for for coming on this morning. We appreciate it very much. Larry, it's my pleasure. You know, I'm reading your block, but you got a great one this morning. Roe was never law. And I'm just reading this, and this is a beauty. So tell us about Roe was never law. This is your column in National Review. Well, you know, I think the the most memorable contemporary remark about Roe, Larry, when it came out in 1973, was by the prominent uh, progressive, well, I guess we in those days, liberal legal scholar, uh, John Hart Ely, who lamented that it wasn't just that Roe was bad constitutional law, but that it wasn't constitutional law at all and didn't seem to have any sense that it had an obligation to try to be constitutional law. And that really is the truth of Roe. It it never even tried to uh, show that it had some rooting, some firm connection, some nexus to the Constitution. And frankly, it only lasted, didn't even make it 20 years. You know, we've been talking for a couple of days now, I guess, about a half century of Roe. We really haven't been under Roe other than its bottom line ruling, which is this manufactured right uh, to abortion. But we haven't actually been under Roe for 30 years because it was such a bad decision that the court in a bare 5-4 majority in Casey, uh, less than 20 years later, had to completely overhaul its reasoning. Hmm. And even in Casey, they didn't try to explain how on, how on earth this came out of the Constitution. So it was always rickety. You know, you say progressives have thus made a talisman of stare decisis, the doctrine of respect for precedent. Now, I'm hearing a lot of that just in the la- since this decision was announced yesterday morning. But as you point out, I mean, okay, like the rest of the row bag of tricks, it's laughable as a legal argument. We've all noticed <laughs> Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, et cetera, et cetera, uh, school, uh, Brown versus School Board. I mean, that's a phony argument to begin with. It sure is. It's a phony argument on its face, and it's also phony as a legal argument as applied. I think Justice Barrett made a, uh, as well as I've ever seen it explained in her confirmation hearing, made the point that uh, stare decisis, which is, as you say, the doctrine of respect for precedent, is not a, is not a rule of decision. It's not something where you say, oh, well, it's a precedent, so we have to apply that. Uh, what stare decisis is, is a test to decide what precedents we should retain, uh, particularly under circumstances where a good argument can be made that something was wrongly decided in the first place. And it's like it's like any number of multi-part legal tests where you deal with things like, well, was it wrong or was it really, really wrong? Um, how much have people relied on it? How stable has it been? How much have they made their, uh, you know, has, has the society made its arrangements about it? So, you know, just saying stare decisis doesn't get you any place, or at least it shouldn't, uh, notwithstanding the, the kind of arguments that we're hearing the last couple of days. But as, as I say, it's applied to Roe in particular. If we could just take abortion out of it and just talk about it as a, as a legal case, it had to be completely overhauled less than 20 years later because it was indefensible as law. And what Casey replaced Roe with was this new test that asked, does a regulation impose an undue burden on abortion? 
And no matter what you think of that test, I think it was not, it was kind of vague and um, it applied in a, not surprisingly in an incoherent way. But no matter what you think of it, when you say what we're going to ask from now on is does this regulation impose an undue burden, what you're basically saying is let's have a lot of regulations and let's let's test this thing. So if you're constantly challenging something, it's not stable. Mm. Uh, and this never was stable. So it, just as a strict stare decisis matter, this is not the kind of precedent that anyone can, can in a straight-faced way, say, oh, yes, this has been very settled for half a century. And we're just talking about the legal aspect of it. There's a whole more important thing that's gone on in the culture and the society where I think more than half the country has always – dissented from this. Half the country is opposed to abortion. And I think even most sensible people who are favorable toward abortion of that group of people, most people really do want it to be safe, legal and rare. Mm -hmm. they don't, people are not wired in a way that they say we're for abortion on demand at any time for any reason. That, that's that's such a fringe position. And yet that's the row position. And, you know, polling shows, uh, Andy, more or less 70 percent uh, oppose second trimester and uh, over 80 percent oppose third trimester abortions. I mean, the country was never there. And now Biden is talking about this crazy bill that uh, he can't get through Congress. He says that would codify Roe. It would do no such thing. It would actually, if you put it in, it would actually codify late-term partial birth abortions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I, I've thought for a long time, Larry, when they start talking about this stuff, I mean, Biden doesn't answer questions, right? I, like he's, mm. uh, you know, mm. he's answered, you know, five questions since he's been inaugurated. <laughs> um, and every time he says something, you know, he said a lot of goofy things in his presidency. But yesterday, right after this decision came out, he said, after a lot of throat clearing about what great experience he had as the judiciary chairman and vice mm -hmm. president and president, he said, I believe uh, as a lawyer that Roe was very solid constitutional law. And I'm sitting there <laughs> thinking that may be the most goofy thing he said in 17 months because nobody believes that, you know, beginning with John Hardy and going forward. Anybody who looked at that as a, as, as a legal matter, nobody believes that. So. When they talk about codifying Roe, what we should point out is, well, tell us what abortion restrictions you're willing to indulge. Which ones are you willing to? And they won't name a single one. And I hope what people realize is with Roe gone, what they get to do is have the abortion regime that they want to live under. Whereas mm -hmm. with Roe, it was, again, abortion on demand anytime. Uh, for any reason, right up to the moment of delivery. And most people think that's really radical and not what they want to live under. Even liberal academic jur jurists who favor abortion and favor choice uh, have said and written that this uh, Roe was a terrible uh, decision and it was so badly written uh, based on nothing but thin air. Uh, Andy McCarthy, last one. Um, I didn't exactly know this, but I'm reading it this morning. The Justice Department, Merrick Garland and the Justice Department issued this, uh, really a screed against the Supremes yesterday. Um, huh? Really? The D Justice Department is attacking the authority 
of the Supreme Court? I mean, isn't that a bit unusual? It is, Larry, except in the context of this Justice Department, which has been very political for day one. What I would stress to people is as much screeching about abortion as you're hearing, um, what's going on the last 24, 36 hours is not about abortion. It's about the Democrats' desire to come up with issues that basically prevent them from having to try to run on Biden's record. So for two weeks, we've had, you know, Capitol riot hearings, 17 months after the Capitol riot uh, on uh, in the House. Uh, and now we're going to have, uh, you know, they're going to try to make the big issue abortion. Um, they'd rather be talking about anything, I imagine, than six dollar gas. But mm. but I think most people care about six dollar gas. Well, I think you're right. I mean, this is this is going to be an inflation election and ultimately yep. a recession election and you're right five or six dollar gas but i just was i mean i don't know i just it just i'm reading bill barr's memoir okay so maybe yep. that's right you right. know it, it is it's pretty darn good he's a very bright guy uh and a friend of ours and you know the justice department is not supposed to attack the supreme court i mean that's yep. very unusual i think yep yeah it, it it's uh <laughs> it's not only it's 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 unusual, but it's so unbecoming. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I don't the thing that Bill says, which which I think is he's totally right about is, you know, we need to get the Justice Department out of politics and politics out of the Justice Department because mm-hmm. it's it's ruining both. Uh, this is really corrupting the Justice Department to have to get on board with the political messaging of the White House on every big issue. Um, it doesn't do the, the work of federal prosecutors. I was one for a long time to insult the court that you have to appear before is not like good business, you know. Mm. Um, so it's just very imprudent and very unbecoming. I was just talking to Betsy DeVos, who, you know, got a great book out. She's crusaded for school choice all these years. And this is when the, this is the Merritt Garland Justice Department attacking parents as domestic terrorists. And then I, I guess the next thing is they're going to attack the Supremes as domestic terrorists. Who knows? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it'd be nice if they would protect them from domestic terrorists. <laughs> you know. Andrew McCarthy, the best of the best, Fox News, National Review, former prosecutor, great friend. Thank you, Andy. We appreciate it very much. Thanks. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the war against fossil fuels, the Security Exchange Commission thinks it's the Security and Environmental Commission. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Uh, We're trying to find Harvey Pitt, former SEC chair. Talk about, um, see if we can get him or not, but I'll uh, talk it through myself. I mean, there's this bizarre operation going on inside the Biden administration with the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, which chairman uh, is Gary Gensler, somebody that I've known for many, many years. Uh, Like so many Democrats, he's gone way far left. He's become an apostle of this uh, religion of climate change, radical climate change and the Green New Deal. Now, here's the thing. The um, Security Exchange Commission is supposed to help investors and companies, for that matter, by requiring various disclosures from publicly held companies, stock market companies, and and also privately held companies, 
but we think of it in terms of the stock market and the blue sky laws. They got to tell the truth. They have to tell us what's material, quote unquote. That's a very important word. But the Biden's endless campaign to make energy expensive and really to damage businesses. I mean, they're over-regulating fossil fuels. They want to put fossil fuels out of business. And this uh, bait-and-switch uh, business with the oil company CEOs on Thursday, you know, Biden never showed up to meet with them. He met with the windmill makers instead. Uh, but actually, they're trying to over-regulate all business, accusing them of not paying their fair share in taxes and uh, excess profits and uh, blaming them, you know, pharmaceutical companies, poultry companies, meat companies, oil companies, um, blaming them for the inflation, uh, trying to prevent any financing of fossil fuel companies, again, working through the SEC, which is a you know, very, it's an independent agency, supposedly, but you wouldn't know it the way Gensler is running it. So anyway, they put out this um, uh, 2,000 some odd page rule which is only aimed at discouraging the use of fossil fuels and it's forcing companies to publish data that have no impact on profitability, no impact, you know, no material impact, but basically would be a big help for climate activists to attack business, okay, to attack business. And of course, attack fossil fuels. And uh, there's a very strong letter put out by some former uh, chairs of the SEC, Richard Breeden, who is a friend of mine, Harvey Pitt, who's a friend of mine. Harvey was on the TV show last night. As I say, we're trying to reach him now. And some other members, uh, former commissioners of the SEC, Lochner, Roberts, Atkins, so forth and so on. All right, so we found Harvey. First of all, uh, Harvey, Fitt, Harvey Pitt, former, uh, what, we don't have him. Okay, we had him, we didn't have him. Anyway, I'll continue. If he comes on, he comes on. But the, the point here is um, there is no way these businesses can meet the new rule requirements of the SEC without getting into a whole lot of trouble and coming up against major lawsuits left and right. Left and right. And these former SEC people have written that this is a lawless and destructive effort to enact climate rules masquerading as investor protections. And they label it immaterial information. And they quite clearly say that this is nothing but a roundabout way of regulating greenhouse gas emissions themselves at the SEC. And they're handing this big weapon to climate advocates. I mean, they're forcing these companies, not just fossil companies, for heaven's sakes, any company. They're forcing them to estimate not only the carbon impact of their own operations, which itself may be unmeasurable, but to estimate the carbon impact of their customers of their sales forces, of their suppliers, and they're looking for direct, indirect impacts. They're looking for cumulative impacts over long periods of time, like 
over a century? These are things that are impossible. It absolutely impossible. And it's so far beyond the scope of the SEC. But again, you have to keep in mind, folks, that this is another weapon against fossil fuels and the crazy, uh, you know, radical progressive idea, the climate change idea, the Green New Deal idea that somehow we are going to end the use of fossil fuels, despite the fact that, you know, gas prices are $5 nationwide, the inflation rate is 10 percent, energy itself is in scarce supply, we're undersupplied oil, we're we're undersupplied about a million barrels a day of gasoline. And as we were talking about with Senator John Hoven earlier in the show, all right, I think we finally found my pal, Harvey Pitt. Harvey, so you are there. I am, and I apologize. No, don't apologize. It's a pleasure to have you. As, as you said to folks, uh, Harvey was a former chairman of the uh, SEC, and he's now chairman and CEO of Calorama Partners and, and Calorama Legal Services. So, Harvey, I was kind of walking through all the arguments about the insanity of what the SEC is doing. Uh, law, your letter with Dick Breeden and others, lawless, destructive, you know, climate rules masquerading as investor protection, immaterial information. It's a roundabout way of regulating greenhouse gas emissions themselves, hands a weapon to climate advocates and so forth. But you said something very interesting on the TV show last night that I wanted to to pick up on today. You're concerned as a former SEC chair who takes the independent SEC very seriously, that this will this climate attack uh, will do so much damage to the credibility of the commission, that it will damage the other work of the commission, which is legitimate. Could you expand some more on that? We never have enough time uh, on TV. Tell us more about this, damaging uh, the credibility and the future work of the commission in areas that they should be regulating. Sure. I I, I think first let me say that um, uh, the rules um, go well beyond uh, anything that is within the proper remit of the SEC, and it's an overreach. Um, what that means is there will undoubtedly be an attack, and given um, uh, the way the courts have reacted um, uh, to these types of things, the SEC is likely to get slapped down. Now, that may not bother some people, but if you care about the agency, as I do, one of the problems is that this holds out the potential for the courts not just to slap down the SEC on this overreach, but to lose confidence in the SEC's rulemaking. The result of that will be that the normal deference that gets paid to an administrative agency when it adopts rules that are within its scope and mandate will be lost, and things that the SEC needs to be doing will either not be accepted by the courts or will be subject to further attacks 
And all of that will hurt the SEC's stature as a regulatory body. So I'm very worried that this has implications well beyond just what the SEC has done here. Yes, because there, I mean, let's go back and think about this. We're, we're in a period right now of you know, big market volatility. We're in, a, we're in a down market, or it appears to be, um, literally over 100 million people uh, are invested principally through their retirement accounts in the stock market, uh, and they're losing money big time. They're losing their retirement savings. These, these are predominantly middle-class people. Now, the wealthiest own the lion's share, but as I said, there's over 100 million people in, in pension funds, uh, IRAs, 401ks, and so forth and so on. So people are worried about stocks. The SEC is supposed to regulate the stock market or regulate the information, the material information. It's supposed to protect investors, right? Do I have this right? And what you're saying is that's the job we need them to do. The job that my friend Gary Gensler is having them do is to spend all their time regulating in order to attack fossil fuels and uh, sucking in all these companies, uh, and they will be thrown out in courts. There'll be a million lawsuits, trial lawyers. So the whole agency is being diminished in the eyes of the marketplace, which is what you're worried about. Exactly. Um, and um, it's a, um, a questionable approach because there's so much that needs to be done within the SEC's jurisdiction and so much that needs to be done to protect all of the people you've just mentioned, most of whom are in the markets through financial intermediaries. They need help. Their retirement savings are being lost, and instead of trying to provide them with a marketplace that works fairly, they are in fact being targeted with rules that have very little relevance either to them or to what the SEC does. A point you made last night on TV, I want to emphasize, you, you said, it's a very radical, bold point, that we have another agency whose uh, legal purview is the environment. Which one is that, Harvey? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 um, the, you know, if someone is supposed to regulate gas house emissions and so on, there is an agency for that. That's the Environmental Protection Agency. It's oh. not. And um, um, when the SEC undertakes to try and dictate uh, what companies must disclose about gas house emissions, it is wandering extremely far afield from its, um, uh, its actual mandate. And that is what is so particularly troublesome about the SEC's initiatives here. Harvey, what do you think they should be doing right now? Well, I, I think right now um, uh, there is um, a fair amount of insider uh, trading going on. I think the SEC um, needs to get back to 
um, dealing with the um, enormous uh, power that <clears throat> index funds are um, uh, uh, exercising over the marketplace. We've got a marketplace that's volatile, uh, where um, the country seems to have become a nation of day traders as opposed to people who are investing in the markets. These markets have to be safe for individuals and their retirement plans so that they know exactly what they're investing in, what they're getting, and the people who are supposed to be governing the um, fates of these uh, funds are taking into account the uh, investors' interests and not their own performance measurements and, um, I hate to say this, but woke policies. I mean, um, yes, of course, woke policies. Uh, so if the SEC is becoming the Securities and Environment Commission, uh, do they have a lot of expertise on these fossil fuel matters and greenhouse gas emission matters? so that having published this incredible rule, they can actually administer it? I mean, do they know what they're doing? The, the, the problem is there are a lot of very able and smart people at the SEC. They know about securities markets. They don't know about fossil fuel emissions. Hmm. Um, and that's not meant to be derogatory about the SEC. That's not their mandate. So, of course, they know virtually nothing about green uh, greenhouse gas emissions. That's the job of the EPA, and the SEC has no business trying to regulate and direct what the form of disclosures should be uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. That should be left to the agency Congress designated to do the job. Uh, Harvey Pitt, did, did you get a response uh to your letter? Um, yes, it was um, crickets. <laughs> crickets. That's it. I mean, <laughs> that's just, I'm laughing. It's just too absurd. This whole thing is the theater of the absurd. This whole campaign against fossil fuels is the theater of the absurd, but that's a, a, a different kind of segment. Um, l last question, last uh, 30, 40 seconds. Uh, where did this come from? I mean, did you know this was coming? Because, you know, you keep in touch with staff and so forth. Uh, along the way, did the career staff at the SEC raise, you know, alarm bells about this? No, I, this, is, um, um, this is a top-down directive, um, and um, it is a part of what I think is a, an administration committed to um, dealing with the issues of fossil fuels and otherwise. And um, this is the SEC, um, unfortunately, overreaching where it belongs um, instead of dealing with disclosures that investors really care about, those that are financially material. Uh, Team Biden's endless campaign to end fossil fuels infiltrating the SEC. Harvey Pitt, former SEC chair. Thank you, Harvey. We appreciate it very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. 
Uh, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I want to put a cap on this conversation with um, Harvey Pitt regarding Biden's endless campaign to end fossil fuels. I mean, Harvey correctly points out we have an agency that is there to presumably regulate uh, clean air and clean water and greenhouse gases and carbon emissions and so forth and so on. It is not the SEC, it's the EPA. Okay, but let's be sure we understand, let's look at the EPA. Okay, the EPA has issued a series of rules and they've destroyed a series of rules from the Trump administration that essentially do the same thing that the SEC is attempting to do, and that is to destroy fossil fuels, to destroy fossil fuels. And please remember that oil and gas... Uh, and derivatives, uh, including gasoline, for heaven's sakes, uh, supply 80% of our power, 80. And uh, solar and wind uh, and some biofuels, I don't know, I, I, they might be up to 5 or 6%. And the rest is, is water and nuclear. But the biofuels and the solar and the wind, 5 or 6%. Oil and gas and gasoline and derivatives, 80%. And just think about that. There is no alternative structure for so-called renewables. And the one that is on the table is one that the greenies hate, and that's nuclear. And I would say, if you're looking longer run, I mean, I'm talking 50 years, 75 years, 100 years. The solutions here, there's going to be a role for wind and solar. They're not reliable. That's the problem. We can't capture enough of it. And by the way, building wind turbines you know, called wind farms and solar farms and panels, requires mining and other resource development, which itself will release carbon into the air. But the point is there is no alternative framework here. What Biden is trying to do is destroy our main, overwhelmingly main, 80% source of power, for something that does not exist. That's the incredible part of this, uh, you know, far left so-called progressive climate change. And of course, ironically, we have the cleanest air and the cleanest water of any major developed country in the world, okay? We've done a great job. Um, natural gas, the fracking revolution, which was aimed at oil, but wound up unlocking this massive natural gas, was a revolutionary development. And it is the major source of power, again, along with nuclear. All right? And also technology innovations are occurring to make fossil fuels even cleaner. I mean, carbon capture and storage is a very important thing. Very important thing. Now, I'm an all-of-the-above guy. I mean, I say 
solar and wind and electric vehicles and electric charges, fine. You can figure out a way to do it where the pricing makes sense without continuous massive government subsidies, which, by the way, Holman Jenkins wrote about this. I mean, all these subsidies for electric vehicles and so forth, they have not, there's been no appreciable impact on lower carbon. But the point is the Bidens have launched a policy that makes absolutely no sense. There's no science. There's no development. There's no alternatives. And what it's done in just a year and a half is choke off fossil fuel advances to the extent that we are now once again witnessing $120 oil and $5 gasoline and high inflation, and we're heading into recession. That's what they have done. They are driving us into inflationary recession for an idea and a theory that has no backing and support and lacks common sense. That's the issue. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to look at the stock market, which had a pretty good relief rally this week. Stay with us. Much more to come. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week, Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, every single day. And uh, here you can get us on the Internet. You can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com, all around the country, throughout the world, and the solar system. Let's look at the stock market. Got to do some stock market work. A good relief rally this week. Last week was a catastrophe. This week was better. The Dow was up uh, 1,600 points, 1,612 points. The other indexes followed suit. Interest rates coming down a little bit. Market rates, not the Fed rates. Uh, Jay Powell, will talk about him and the Fed. He's very aggressive in front of the Senate and the House in his testimonies. He's kind of growing hair on his chest, isn't he? He's just getting his Volcker, his Volcker routine back on. We'll see if that lasts. But market rates actually coming down. Commodities starting to come down a little bit. And uh, inflation expectations slipping a bit in the, in the CPI tips market. And um, consumer confidence, very bad. University of Michigan consumer confidence continues to slip. Are we heading for a recession? Are we heading for an inflationary recession, as Milton Friedman talked about uh, four decades ago or more? Anyway, we'll bring in our experts, Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President of Investments at Morgan Stanley, and David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors. Uh, David Kotak, um, a relief rally? Or is it the beginning of something wonderful? <laughs> what, what do you think? <laughs> well, Larry, good morning. I, I, you, when you opened the show, you included the solar system. Yes. And that's the first time I heard you reach that far. Oh, yeah. It's we nice have a treme- tremendous reach throughout the solar system. <laughs> so the, <laughs> and you can do it all solar- on the Internet. Well, there you go. So the solar system is asking the very same question. Uh, I'm not convinced that we made a bottom. Uh, I heard, pal, all the things you said when you opened the show. I'm not convinced. We have to see. We are in extreme uncertain time, shooting war worldwide, financial sanction payments war, 
unknown geopolitical outcomes, lockdown in China and the second largest economy in the world, commodity prices have rolled over, housing is rolling over. Where this takes us now, we don't know. So my answer is inflationary recession or disinflationary recession. Recession, yes, it's already here. Hmm. Two successive quarters of GDP, the old definition when you and I studied these things, is in the it, – it's already etched. Look at Atlanta GDP now and last quarter. We don't define recessions that way anymore, but they feel like they used to the old way. So I'm not sure. The safest and best honest answer is I don't know. <laughs> All right. Jim LeCamp, you always know. So was this a was this a relief rally or or the start of something really wonderful? I'm laughing because I don't see anything that's really wonderful out there. I think Kotak laid it out pretty well. Um, what do you think, Jim LeCamp? I think it's highly unlikely that we've set a bottom in uh, because uh, the 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 Cerberus. We're, we're getting very Greek here. We've got a Cerberus of problems. We've got the Fed. Uh, battling uh, inflation probably the wrong way. Uh, we've, so we've got the Fed, we've got inflation. But uh, the, the thing that nobody's really talking about that I think is going to be as big or bigger of a problem on this Cerberus, and it's, it's, it's more like a hedra because when you cut one head off, uh, some other problem emerges. It just never stops. And, and I think investors could end up more like Sisyphus than anything else. But uh, I think valuations are a real problem here, Larry, uh, because you've got input prices that, that are way up for these companies. You've got margin pressures, uh, and, and, and they're catching it from both sides. So look at what Target says this week. They, they're over-inventoried, so they're going to have to slash prices. Now, bear in mind, they had to pay up to get that inventory to begin with. So I think we're going to see profit margins being really crunched. And a wise man once told me that uh, corporate profits are the mother's uh, milk of stock market profits. I, I, I forget who that was. But um, I, I think we've got real issues now. We're bouncing from a really uh, – from standard deviation work, we were at a tremendously oversold spot um, about a week ago. And so the bounce was due to happen. And it could go a little farther, not much, maybe 4,000 or so. You're going to have some resistance up there around 4,000. Uh, safest guess is that July's okay. Historically, July's a pretty good month, and we're still coming from an oversold spot. And then August, September, we have a, at least a retest before we can start thinking about a bottom. David Kotak, uh, let's talk about the Fed. Uh, Jay Powell testified before the Senate and House Financial Committees. And the way I read it is, gee whiz, I wish we didn't have to, but we're going to tighten it up, so we're going into recession. Now, you're arguing that we're already in the recession. All right, fair enough. I think that's a, you know, a strong case. But um, what surprised me was after he went through that in his Volcker routine, he's grown hair on his chest, all right? It's nothing but slaying inflation. The stock market kept rallying. I was surprised at that. Well, but maybe market agents are saying going, taking the rate up faster, harder, 
and getting to whatever the neutral rate is, and I don't like the way they toss around the word the neutral rate, but never define it. And sooner, quicker is desirable, so we get the pain over with faster. Mm -hmm. That would be an interpretation. You know, Larry, I remember and you remember, in fact, you and I met and we both remember the Volcker time. And Volcker was determined to crush inflation at all costs. I'm not convinced that determination is in this Fed when the rubber hits the road and when the labor force contraction occurs. And if there is any contagion effects, and we haven't seen any of those, you know, Jim just mentioned valuations. I think we are into areas of selection of sectors and businesses and exclusion of others. For example, in our shop, we have had a cash reserve the entire quarter we are underweight the banks and financials. We see risk profile rising there. They don't get the benefits of a zero interest rate funding on their deposits anymore. So I think selectivity of companies and sectors is very critical here. Jim McCamp, if I heard him correctly, David Kotak is questioning the values of the Fed. Did you hear that? I mean, he's sort of saying, it sounds like uh, all these radical climate change, woke social policy members of the Federal Reserve Board might not be tough on inflation. Before we take a commercial break, you got a minute. You think that's almost heresy from Mr. Kotak. Not only do they have weak knees, they have no knees. They have no backbone. They have no spine. And I, I can tell you when we, they see used car prices down 6%, lumber prices down about 50%, they're in their back room cheering because they can uh, at some point, and they're looking at the inflation expectations and what the long bonds are saying, and at some point they're, they're, going, they're, they're saying, goody, goody, we don't have to be as tough as we said we were going to be. I guarantee that's happening back there. And the difference between, to David's point, between now and Volcker, is there Walker wasn't trying to unwind a nine trillion dollar balance sheet? We don't even know how to unwind a two trillion dollar balance sheet, much less nine. They have painted themselves into a corner that they just cannot get out of, and the only thing they know is more booze in the punch bowl, and eventually it'll come sooner than people think. Wow, you guys are highly caffeinated today. I love this. <laughs> Terrific stuff. i got to take a commercial break. Jim LeCamp and Morgan Stanley, David Kotak of Cumberland Advisors. I'm Larry Kellogg. I guess the question is, which is better for carbon emissions, high inflation or low inflation? Which is better than global warming? Anyway, we'll talk about that. And commodities are softening a wee bit. Maybe it's just a peak. Who knows? I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with stocks. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jim LeCamp of Morgan Stanley and David Kotak of Cumberland Advisors. Let's just spend a moment on the commodities. Commodity price rule is a pretty good inflation indicator. So I don't know whether there's a change in the trend or not, but in the last few weeks, 
The CRB futures, which I love, that has energy in it, it has gold in it, it has industrials, metals, agriculture, foodstuffs, and so forth. So that's down, uh, let's see, it's down 5% in the last month, but it is up 42% over the past year. The uh, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index is down 2.5% in the last month, but it's up 52% in the past year. Um, fellas, are commodities, and I, I want to add to that, the uh, CPI break-evens in the Treasury market, their rates have fallen. I mean, they're, they're still pretty high. That Let's see, the two-year break-even is 374. It's an inflation measure. The five-year is 284. So they're down, but they're still, you know, historically quite high. Um, Jim LeCamp, what's your commodity read on this? What are commodities? Uh, they're a little soft, but is there a change in trend or not? Well, this is the goofy thing. The Fed says um, that they want to fight headline inflation, which includes energy, of course, but that they don't really have any control over energy prices. So what, are they, what exactly are they trying to do here? I think um, you're, you're seeing prices come down. Yeah, you've got some deflation kicking in. I mentioned the target thing. You've got, um, as you mentioned, commodity prices overall are down. Lumber prices down. Used car prices are down. Um, uh, home prices are down even. Um, but with energy, it's a different animal because the energy companies are not hitting CapEx like they used to. They used to hit high prices with as much CapEx as you could possibly imagine, too much, They'd kill you with supply, and then prices would come way down. A, they've learned not to do that. B, ESG uh, pressures have um, have weighed against them on doing that. And C, they can't get labor out in the oil patch. So to me, we can talk about inflation all we want, but where it really hits consumers is energy, and we've got the wrong energy policy, and it's going to be a thorn not only in our side, but over all of our body uh, until until we have more coherent policy, as you mentioned. Look, we all want clean air, right? We all want clean air and clean water. But you can't snap a finger and make it happen. You can't kill um, an industry like this that's, that's so vital to everybody's needs, not only here in the U.S., but globally. So I, I, I think that's going to be uh, a continued, pro, continual and continued problem. And I don't know how the inflation numbers, especially the head, headline, and that's what the Fed's talking about, can really come down unless they do something on the fiscal side with energy policy. You know, David Kotak, I would argue we have clean air and clean water. But the only place that we don't have clean air and clean water is in the White House, which is suffering from major <laughs> pollution. Well, I, I don't I don't visit the White House uh, frequently these days. You can get reports, so, so, though. But, okay. but, the but reports Larry, coming I, out. I, yeah, well, but, yeah, okay. But I want to take the other side. In this case, I disagree with Jim. And let me tell you why. We are seeing a change in geopolitical elements forced on the Biden administration. Example, there is an outreach for discussion with Venezuela. Sanctions were lifted to allow Maduro to ship crude to Europe. Now, that wouldn't have happened without a geopolitical change. 
So if I were the czar, would we have more open supply coming from the United States in oil and gas because the world is going to get it, may as well get it from us instead of the Russians? Yes, I'm not the czar. But I am seeing forces forcing policy. And let me defend the Fed for a minute here, too. I think the Fed is looking at the PCE, not the headline number. The Federal Reserve can't drill for oil. They don't know how to run a refinery. They don't drive tractors. They don't know how to run a farm. So the headline discussion, which makes the headlines all the time, is not the focus of this Federal Reserve because they know they can't be farmers and they know they can't drill for oil. So they've got to look at the composition of PCE, and they've got to look at the rest of it, not the headline. Let me give you an example. 18% of the U.S. economy is in the healthcare sector. The healthcare sector is actually had a little contraction, and the inflation rate in the healthcare sector is 2.5%. We never talk about that. We talk about the 8%. We talk about the gasoline prices. Gasoline in the United States is big. And it's a headline we see every day because we drive past a gas station and see the price. But 18% of the GDP of the United States is the health care for Larry Kudlow or for Jim or for me or for 330 other million people. So there's but two David, sides to but this. But, David, the, the Fed themselves said that they were worried about the headline number, and and, and they admitted that they were swayed by the consumer uh, surveys about headline inflation. So while I agree with you, the Fed themselves have said that they were fighting headline inflation. Well, but look, at, fellas, the core PCE deflator, which is really their ultimate target, is 6%. So that's a big number. And they have work to do. I mean, it, Look, the, you're no right. The question, Fed doesn't. Larry, they have work to do. No, they got question. work to do. I mean, they're going to yep. do. They got it to get it to get, to try to get uh, back in the game. They're going to have to do 75 in and the next month, and they're going to have to do 75 in September. I mean, otherwise, real interest rates are way too low. They're just way too low. You can't have a whatever it is one and three quarter percent target rate and a six percent PCE core deflator. You just can't have that and and expect inflation to come down. So the problem is, let's go back to the stock market, Jim LeCamp. Knowing the Fed is going to tighten a lot more, all right, they're going to raise their target rate and they're going to cut back on their bond portfolio. What is the outlook for stocks? Uh, not good. I mean, when has the Fed raised into this flat of a yield curve before this aggressively? Uh, and, and, and corporate profits are all – you can't really argue that stocks are cheap right now. From a historical standpoint, point, they're cheaper than they were two years ago, and they're cheaper than they they were six months ago. But they're not cheap from a historical standpoint. Now you've already had one quarter, as David mentioned, one quarter of negative GDP. This quarter is either going to be flat or slightly negative, slightly positive. It's going to be real flattish. So you could argue that you're already in a recession, and, and the Fed is aggressively hiking into a recession. It won't be good for stocks. That's why I think we've uh, got um, a, a resetting of our valuations and, and a retest of the lows in store for us. I'll, uh, we may have a week or two of rally. But that should be used as an excuse to sell names you don't want anymore. And I agree with David as well that you have to be more selective in which kinds of stocks you own. 
Dave Kotak, uh, Ed Yardeni is writing this morning. Uh, the S and P 500 forward PE is now 16.3. All right, so that's not wildly optimistic, but it's not wildly pessimistic either. I want to see the earnings reports in July and August. Mm-hmm. It'll be the first time we're going to be able to see them company by company, sector by sector, and take them apart. It's the first time in the financials we're going to see whether the reserves and loan loss reserves that we saw with Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase last quarter are expanded or repeated. What do we see for the mid-sized banks? This is a tell. We're going to learn something in the next eight weeks mm-hmm. from these earnings reports. We're going to learn them about sectors and companies. Now, there's certain sectors like defense aerospace. I'm overweight. I took the weight up in the sell-off. You look at the world, Larry, we're going to have a record defense budget for good reason. So there are places to be. Right. Okay, well, that's not so bad. Um, Jim LeCamp, 30 seconds. Interest rates, market rates, 10-year, what do you think, real quick? Uh, I think uh, long rates stay about where they are. Obviously, short rates will have to come up because the Fed will hike, and that will invert the curve by September. Jim LeCamp, Morgan Stanley, Dave Kotak, Cumberland Advisors. I'd say it's a pretty cautious outlook from our two gents. Folks, stay with us. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to come back and do some money in politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. We'll be right back after this break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Okay, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week, Fox Business. Name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And two of the stars of the show, Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, chief economist, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and author of Govzilla. So, kids, um, I'm looking at the Fox Business website. Alaska Airlines, Dick's Sporting Goods, J.P. Morgan, Disney and others. Others include Citibank, Microsoft, Starbucks. Anyway, a whole bunch of big companies are going to cover all the costs uh, for abortions. Okay, now I find that very interesting, a little wokeness here. Um, Liz Peake, I begin with you. Is this what they should be doing? You okay with this? Uh, I know it's controversial and so forth, and different people have different opinions about this, but what do you make of it? I, I think the rationale has to be that this is important for them maintaining their employees in states which might rule against abortion. In other words, there is some justification, it seems to me, for a company that, for example, uh, has a manufacturing plant or an office complex in Missouri for saying to the employees in Missouri, don't leave, don't move out. And there have been polls showing that people are threatening to leave these states. I, I sort of suspect that's not the case. But in any event, if a company can justify this important, uh, th- this is important for the morale and keeping of their employees, then I think it's a reasonable thing to do. I know mm-hmm. that's controversial. Um, but under that banner, I suspect, yeah, that they that they can do that. No, I you look at I, you know, this whole issue. I mean, I'm a I'm a staunch pro lifer myself. But 
Uh, I, I understand these things. I mean, Steve Moore, it's like, I don't really want these companies to do that because it's so woke. But on the other hand, if the companies are going to do it, they're going to do it. I'm just curious what your reaction is. Well, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm pro baby. <laughs> I'm, I'm pro adoption. Yes. I'm pro pro uh, life. Um, but I think Liz makes a good case, so I can't argue with what she just said. Um, I don't know what's going on with Disney, by the world way. <laughs> this used to be a wholesome pro family, you know, <laughs> company, and now they move so far to the left away. I mean, you know, Walt Disney really is rolling over in his grave when he sees what's happened with these companies. Um, but look, I can't. A company can provide whatever benefits it wants, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- this is better than you know taking positions on elections. And, and uh, you know, gender and sex and all the rest of it. So this is more more utilitarian approach. I understand that. Yeah. Can, I, can I just add one, one thing on this, though, yeah. that it, just a broader point, which is these companies keep misreading the American people. This is not a center left. It's not a left country. It's a, it's a, it's a country that's pretty pretty conservative overall and they i think i don't know what it is that they're so persuaded by the media or by the silicon valley workers or the you know the college graduates um that that somehow they have to appeal to consumers by moving way to the left on almost every political issue and i I just don't get it i think they're out of touch with real america i just wonder uh i know i don't want to obsess about this but i just wonder whether their health benefits with respect to abortion uh, include unlimited, no restrictions on abortions, because yeah. that's not where the country is. I mean, the I, country, the country, <clears throat> you know, I, I talked about this last night on the show and a little bit this morning. The country, uh, basically, a little more than half the country, Liz, you look at the Gallup poll on this, but other polls say the same thing, YouGov and so forth. A little more than half the country is in favor of first trimester, okay? Um, 70% of the country, 65 to 70% of the country is opposed to second trimester abortion, and 80% plus are opposed to third trimester. Now, how that governs or influences these uh, corporate health care plans, I don't know. I'd be interested to know, but I don't know. Well, I think that's, you raise a really good point, and I think... What will determine that, I'm guessing, is the state's uh, laws to which these people travel. In other words, if you are an employee in Missouri and you decide you need an abortion and you're seven months pregnant, you're going to go to New York because, unfortunately, that is legal in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I I actually um, I agree with you and I am in the middle of where the country is. I think abortion should be going back to that old catchword. Uh, safe, rare, and legal, mm-hmm. uh, and limited very much so to the first trimester. I think one of the more interesting things that happened yesterday is that people, I think Neil Cavuto's show was talking about this, the countries around the world and what is the, the common practice. The common practice is exactly what Mississippi did, which was legally limiting abortions to 15 weeks, mm-hmm. not 24, interestingly. And, you, and they went through a whole list of countries where 15 weeks is the limit. So this is not completely crazy. And, and I, think, um, I, I think it's going to be very interesting. I, I don't really know that about the politics of this, but a lot of states have now had these trigger 
um, laws in effect. So when Roe v. Wade was overturned, automatically almost it seemed they will ban abortions, which has just happened today in Missouri. Mm. The question is, when people go to vote in Missouri, are they going to really support that? Or is that, was that, were those triggers put in place by politicians kind of virtue signaling, not really imagining it would ever happen? I actually have no idea. Mm. But I can't imagine that state after state is going to ban all abortions, including in cases of rape or incest, or a child that cannot be viable. I, I can't. Im- <clears throat> excuse me. I can't imagine that that will become our practice in in so many in dozens of states. But I leave that to you guys. I really don't know the politics of so this. Can, can I make an economic point, Larry? Because this is an economic finance. <laughs> so, uh, look, we need babies. <laughs> we need yes. lots of millions yes. and millions of babies. And, you know, our birth rate is now below replacement level. Yeah. And uh, we have a, sh- a shortage. Uh, we're going to have a declining population. And economically, that's a bad thing. So I just wanted to make that economic point. No, okay. it's an important you know. look. I've talked about it on the TV show and here. I, I wrote about it again ye- uh, yesterday in my riff. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, you need population growth. Right. Uh, and when, when, a, when an economy is governed by free market principles, population growth is pro-growth. It's yep. pro-growth. And somebody, you know, we need kids, babies to grow up into the workforce to support um, Social Security and Medicare and, you know, the rest of the economy. But, Steve, to go further on this or generalize uh, I'm thinking that Joe Biden would like this to be uh, a row election. And yeah, the question yeah. is, is it a row election or is it an inflation election? I mean, you can see their strategy unfolding. Yeah, I just want to make one other point that, to carry on with what you said about, you know, a population growth and babies being pro, pro-economic pro uh, prosperity. Think about the number of potential Einsteins and Steve Gates and Paul McCartney's that could be aborted and not ever, you know, be alive. So that's a tragic thing. Um, and Liz Peaks. Think of the Liz yeah, Peaks we might lose. Larry Cudlow. Oh okay. okay. I have, since yeah. you raised my name, I got to push back on this. Yes, we need families. We need babies. Yeah. But better to have babies born to families who are willing Absolutely. to raise them and excited 100%. about that and optimistic yeah. well, about those babies' futures than having people, as they are saying now on the left, forced to carry children to term, and then what? And then the state takes over, you know, we have adoption. I I mean, that's not an argument, in my view, for... Uh, Anyway, I'll leave that there. I don't don't agree with you. Because it is an important point, and Liz and I seldom disagree, but on this point, though, adoption, I mean, adoption used to be a very common practice in America, Mm -hmm. and there are there are millions of families in this country, Liz, that, that want to adopt children. Now, I agree with you. We, you know, we want, uh, you know, if a woman doesn't want to have a child, you know, it's not going to be a good situation if she has to have the child, right, unless she puts it up for adoption. So I wish culturally we would shift towards a pro-adoption position. That's, that's my point about this. I mean, Liz, what do you think about that? Well, I think adoption's terrific. Again, uh, if if it makes sense economically, I mean, someone has to support that mother while she's pregnant. Right. Presumably at some point she can't work. I mean, I think it's a little more complicated than just saying, uh-huh. oh, we need babies. That's that's where I am. 
All right. Okay. Um, I got to well, take but, a bit. I never I, answered your question, Larry, about, yes, the Democrats. I'm not going to let you. To... Hang on a second. <laughs> hang on a second. Uh, we had a little baby discussion. So now I have to take a baby commercial break. And then I want to get back to whether this is going to be a row election or an inflation uh, election. I think this has a lot to do with the Democrat strategy. They, I think they tried to make it a January 6th committee election. That didn't seem to pan out so much. Now they want to make it a row election. But the rest of the country thinks it's an inflation election. Anyway, Liz Peek and Steve Moore and I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're here with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, chief economist of FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the author of Govzilla. Steve Moore, please continue now. Is this going to be a row election, or is this going to be an inflation election? Well, the Democrats obviously want to make a row election, and they're going to be talking about the fact that a lot of states are going to ban abortions outright. And I'm, I'm with the two of you. I, I am pro-life. But I do think, you know, something like a reasonable, you know, first trimester, you know, up to the first trimester. I don't even care. exactly. What really bothers me is the is the, you know, the, the last trimester abortions, which I think are um, really, really awful. So, yeah, the Democrats will um, use this as an issue. And, and frankly, they're going to use the gun issue as well. I mean, the Democrats had a good week this week in the sense that two issues that they uh, it allows them to change the subject from inflation uh, recession, you know, the war on American energy, the things that are just driving them down. So I think they will certainly they, what they want to talk about for the next three months is abortion and gun control. Hmm. Liz, will they get away with it? Well, I, I think a little bit. It depends on how bad the economic data is over the next right. several months. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I think this we've got a long way to go till November voting. And there are going to be some tough months, I suspect, ahead in terms of the economy slowing down, unemployment beginning to pick back up again, et cetera. And so I, I remember when the Alito uh, draft came out, was leaked, I sort of thought it was in Republicans' best interest in a sense that it, <clears throat> it was that many more months that uh, voters were, were going to be talking about this and eventually – it would not be top of mind. I mean, I, I, I am very cynical about the uh, attention span of the average American. I think it's very short. So, yes, we're going to have a lot of rioting and discord this summer over the next couple of weeks, maybe. Is this really going to continue into October, September, October, November? I don't think so. I think let's go to the data point. You think oil prices are going to come down, gasoline prices are going to come down, inflation is going to come down? And, I mean, we're either in a recession or on the front end of a recession, Steve Moore. I mean, I, I don't think the uh, Roe election is going to work. And I don't think the gun control election is going to work. It's not showing up in the polls. And um, I think people's, you know, these issues, these social issues do not cut in, to everyday life. I mean, we've seen this before. The economy is always the dominant issue, unless you're in a direct shooting war. But I, I mean, I, I think Biden's this is democratic desperation, Steve Moore. Well, you may be right. Uh, I, I'm a little more skeptical of that. Uh, I do think people care about the cultural issues, um, but you know, primarily they they care about the 
the issues of, of their jobs and what things cost and whether they can make ends meet. Um, but the Democrats are going to make Republicans out as kind of right wing cultural freaks. And that's kind of going to be their their argument. I, I I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's it's not as a good situation as if we were just talking about the economy. Let's put it like that. Amen. Do you think, do you think um, the, the gun decision by the Supremes overturning the Sullivan Act in New York State, do you think that's popular or unpopular, Liz, nationwide? Oh, I think it's unpopular because it's been characterized as yet another reason that we're going to have shootings, you know, mayhem in, in New York City, whether or not that's accurate. Um, but but I think um, let's talk about what the economy is going to look like over the next few months, because I think that's interesting. I think it's going to be very, very important. The fact that consumer sentiment, which I know I'm like an, this is my E-Day speaks, but <laughs> consumer sentiment is so horrible right now. Right. And I'm wondering how it gets better. Mm. Uh, does it get better if Joe Biden goes to Saudi Arabia and OPEC says they're going to raise oil production? Maybe a little. Maybe that'll help a little bit. But overhanging all of this, which I think we talk far too little about, is what's happening in China. If China really gets through this lockdown period and the economy there begins to grow again, you're going to have demand for oil pushing prices up again. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're looking at oil prices where they are right now with demand in China, a major market, obviously, severely depressed. If things don't get back to normal in China... The supply chain problems are going to be continuing. So I don't really see inflation getting much better. I don't see I think we are going to talk more and more about the labor market getting a little softer. So I think those consumer sentiment numbers are going to continue to be pretty darn rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And I think that dominates the conversation going into the fall. Steve. So uh, just going to make a kind of side point on this, which is that um, Laffer and I have a piece that will probably be in The Wall Street Journal next week. And we argue that austerity is no solution to inflation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. austerity is not. And, you know, Larry Summers has been off quoted about, you know, getting it right on inflation. He's wrong. Larry, wrong, wrong. You and I have written pieces about this. You don't produce more goods and services you don't bring down prices by putting people in unemployment lines Mm -hmm. (laughs) i've never that's the dumbest argument i've ever heard and reagan proved that i mean we had under reagan seven years of declining inflation and declining unemployment at the same time Mm -hmm. and so i I cringe when i hear even people on our side say oh we have to have a you know larry uh, Lindsay, who i somebody i respect said well we're going to have to have higher unemployment if we're going to bring the inflation rate down I don't want. I don't like that argument. Well, look <laughs> we at the pro, case, pro, pro supply side. Yeah, look but, at the the Casey Mulligan, the Casey Mulligan op-ed. Yeah, how yep. uh, all these regulatory interventions are killing the supply side of the economy, which then produces fewer goods, which then at the same level right. of demand causes higher exactly. prices. That's exactly right. Liz, you were going to say? No, I I think that's exactly right. You know. Another thing we don't talk about enough, in my view, and I'd say we sort of generally speaking, is the fact that, that Biden is walking exactly the same line as Obama, throwing hordes of new regulations and rules in place. Gary Gensler and all the various financial people involved are doing that. And also all the labor laws that are, are seeping in. People really aren't paying attention to this, but it's exactly like 
what happened under Obama. It raises the cost of everything, including, by the way, the infrastructure spending. Whatever happened to that? Well, it turns out <laughs> that all the rules and regulations and also existing inflation have pushed up the price of everything they're trying to do, like by 25 to 40 percent. It's a disaster. Well, the- you know, they they don't. I mean, honestly, it's a men in black moment. Every time you have Democrats in the Oval Office, they don't remember anything that ever happened before. They certainly don't learn from it. And we are we are traveling exactly the same path, only now it's worse. It's the Securities and Environment Commission. Yeah. It's not the Securities oh, yes. and Exchange Commission. <laughs> I, had, I had Harvey Pitt on talking about this, former SEC chair. And Harvey said, well, you know, the SEC doesn't have any expertise about uh, carbon emissions. They don't have any. He said there is another agency that it has uh, is authorized to talk about this it's called the EPA. But there's you know identity problems here. Gensler thinks he's the head of the EPA, and uh, <laughs> it's it's not good. It's not good. Liz, I just want to before we lose everybody, your piece on Biden's war on oil is fueling Putin's war on Ukraine. I mean, that's a very important piece. And it's like, there he goes again. You, yeah. You, Russia, yeah. China is China and India are buying Putin's oil, you know, at $120 a barrel or $110 a barrel. And that's just putting money into his war machine. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty staggering, isn't it? That even as central banks around the world now are raising interest rates because they need to squash inflation, Russia is cutting theirs because they no longer have to support the ruble because guess what? Their economy is doing fine. And this was supposed to be the outcome of all those dreadful sanctions. We were going to crush Russia through our sanctions program. I don't know about you guys. I am very negative on what is going on with Ukraine, Um, our timid military support for it, the fact that the entire West seems to be completely paralyzed with terror by Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin and unable to rein in the number one source of of, uh, currency and money that is pretty much day by day funding this war. I, I must say, this is Biden's big accomplishment, getting NATO together, standing with our EU partners. To what end? Who is this helping at this point? I mean, I I am very disgusted with and then to have Biden come out and reprimand, as he apparently did, Antony Blinken and Lloyd Austin for saying we wanted Ukraine to win. We're Mm. not trying to win. Oh, boy, does this make my blood boil. (laughs) And Steve, Biden wouldn't meet with the oil and gas CEOs, but he would meet with the windmill makers. (laughs) <laughs> well, Bryce, that, that tells you everything, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and just, to, to, you know, uh, I think Liz's point is so spot on. And so the two countries, and I, I said this on your show long before the election, which is that the two big winners, if, if Biden won the election, would be Russia and China. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's yeah. exactly what's happening. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Liz Peak, thank you. Feel much, thank much you. better. Steve Moore, thank you, buddy. We'll see you both this coming week on the Kudlow Show. Folks, that does it for today. We will be back next weekend with our own July 4th show. 